Wait, there's a funnel? I actually sound excited about it. Okay. <laughs> Do it again. Wait, there's a funnel? I'm Chris Woods, and this is the Industrial Research Podcast. This episode is the last of three parts in trying to predict the future. At some point, we as industrial researchers have to get back to, well, doing research. But we need to finish off how to predict the future. Some reliable, repeatable process that we can all share. I'm going to give you my flavour of it. There's a lot of material out there from a lot of different people on how to do this. And I covered some of that in the last episode. Rather than rehashing that and going through all those processes in great detail, which would bore even my mum, if she's listening to this podcast. Hi, mum. I'm just going to get on with the really important bits. The little nuggets of awesomeness that we need. Now, these nuggets, this process I'm going to outline is based largely on a six-step funnel process that was created by Amy Webb. And she did a lot of work in this and published a book in 2016 called The Signals of Talking. She went on to found the Future Today Institute. And she calls herself not a futurologist, but a quantitative futurologist. And I think that's really because rather than just depicting these trends like Rohit does, what Amy's trying to do is predict the trends and put dates on them put times on them, put magnitude on them. And that's a, that's a huge undertaking. To do that, we don't just need to see the same trends that Rohit does, but we need to put an ETA in when we think they're going to arrive and how big they're going to be when they sweep the globe. And that's tough. And so the process, the six-step process that Amy and the Future Today Institute use really does that, but it goes back through trend prediction and it effectively upgrades that process with some key data points to allow Amy and the FTI to put some dates and ETAs on how things are going to arrive and what they're going to look at. So let's go and have a go at this. Let's go through the six-step process. The first three of these six steps are dedicated just to trend prediction. Just like Rohit, we break this up into data collection and then data analysis, except Amy's added a a second data analysis stage. When we look at data collection or data gathering, Amy and the FTI suggest looking at the fringe. That's the areas of society that see trends first before everybody else does. And she's actually gone through and tried to enumerate the types of people that do that that see these trends. And of course, early adopters are one. Technology evangelists are another. Interestingly, patent filings, because many companies would want to protect their IP, so they will file a patent before a product comes out. And in the same way, you get published papers, academic papers and industrial papers. So one of the other ways to defend your intellectual property is to make sure nobody else can protect it. And to do that, you publish a paper on it. So there are two key ways to see an idea before a product's launched. Startup companies, when you see them being formed or they come out of their dark mode and you see them bringing an idea to market. It hasn't yet got traction, but there's some great ideas in it. 
The other one, and this is a bit nebulous, is communities and groups that may start to adopt the technology before others. So go and look at a particular niche that might be more amenable to a new idea or concept. You see this a lot in, um, in what uh, bootstrap startup companies do, uh, individuals starting their own company without any venture funding. Going after a big client, like a big multinational, is really hard because these big organizations are usually slow to adopt a new idea or concept or a new technology. They'll wait till it's proven somewhere else first. Instead, you probably get a lot more success with a smaller startup, one or two people or an SME who's more flexible and open to trying new ideas that could give it a competitive edge. Finally, they also suggest looking at proposed legislation. Sometimes when a technology comes out, it raises questions about how it should be used. I've already harped on about privacy in the last episode, but privacy legislation is something that's coming to help us understand the new technologies and tools that the internet and IT companies are providing us with today. With all that done, we have a huge pool of resources that, they, that Amy and the FDI has actually told us to go and look at the fringe. I think that's really great. There's some great ideas there and where we can look. The next step is the first phase in data analysis. And Amy and the FTI have a process called Cypher to filter it through. And just like Rohit, it looks for key trends or patterns there where we can see markers or, or indications of a trend forming. They are contradictions, where two opposing technologies or approaches gain favour at the same time, or when a reversal of, a reproach, of an approach suddenly becomes really popular. Inflections, there's a catalyst link. Something occurs and one new technology appears, and it really helps accelerate the adoption of another. So artificial intelligence and the cloud. The cloud provides lots of compute at an affordable price point, which makes artificial intelligence a reality. When new technology or practices really change what we do and the methods that we use, look for hacks. The inventions that twist a take on, on new technology in a new way. Many of those gain traction not because professionals are using them, but because amateurs are starting to hack with them to get stuff done. And finally, and this is kind of cool, they say look for extremes. Look for those wacky inventors who are coming up with new technologies and ideas and trying to use them. It's not that they're going to be successful, but if you've got a researcher or an inventor who's going off and doing something weird and unusual and it's getting some press, it usually means it's getting some funding. And if it's getting some funding... There's an indication of a need there. All that said and done, that cipher process is going to help us identify a whole bunch of different concepts and a whole bunch of different trends. And this probably, because we're humans, we're going to see more patterns than there really are. So the next phase of data processing, of trend analysis, is to try and cut out those ones. And that's to really go through each of the trends that we've identified so far and try and filter them out. And we do this by questioning that trend. And we have two key questions for each trend. 
One. What's the driving force behind the trend? And two. Is that trend likely to spread across multiple industries or multiple technical fields? If you don't really understand where the trend's coming from and why it's gaining popularity and what it's providing an industry, and we don't see it spreading to a different industry, then I think perhaps we need to shelve that idea. It may be a trend that may just not be enough data points right now to understand it completely. So shelve it. The trends that are left are the ones where we're more confident on, and we can take those forward. And this is where it gets really interesting, because we've got now at the end of these three phases to where Rohit was. The next phase is all about timing and how to determine the timing. Calculating the arrival date of a trend is really, really hard. I mean, this is... This is the, the holy grail of what we have to do. But I think that the best approach really is to think back to our TRL scale, where we had to try and predict or determine how developed a technology was. TRL level nine, technology readiness level, level nine, is something we would buy in a store or a shop. It's a fully featured product in a box with all the necessary marketing and go-to-market strategy done and dusted. It's It's a... It's a high quality product. Is our trend there? Well, no. It's going to be somewhere on that TRL scale. And when we try to imagine what the trend would look like as a fully formed product or feature or embedded in our everyday lives, what would that look like? And then work backwards. What key things are missing today that are preventing that trend to be as ubiquitous and as commonplace as we think it should be. And just to try and list out those items. What's missing? And when we identify what's missing, try to think about who might provide it. What are they doing? When I was at university, or it was 20 years ago, when I was at university 20 years ago, um, I remember covering artificial intelligence and my lecturer said, we're going to tell you about this stuff. It's really interesting. It's kind of cool, but uh, it's never going to go anywhere. It's just too expensive. Nobody has the compute power to do it. But today, of course, artificial intelligence is everywhere. We all use it. So what happened? Well, the arrival of the cloud and cheap computing really made artificial intelligence a viable solution. So if we think about AI and it should be everywhere and it's becoming this ubiquitous um, trend today. What was missing? Well, cheap computing. And then think about how that gets provided. It could have been technology innovation, pushing the price point down and Moore's law. But it was also the arrival of this ability to rent computing. So we didn't have the capital expenditure, which made artificial intelligence a bit more applicable. And now, of course, we get artificial intelligence and embedded devices with the arrival of FPGAs and devices like the Movidius chip from Intel, which accelerate artificial intelligence actions in low-cost silicon, which you can embed into devices. So trend prediction then, and ETA prediction is hard. But if we think about how things should be in the future and then work back and try and identify those key things that are missing, 
and where they might come from, that'll give us a timeline, a rough timeline. And we can start to put guesses on where those missing key pieces are going to come from and how long it's going to take for those to arrive and for their impact to be felt. And that allows us to, to work out this ETA. Now, at this point, we've got some trends. We've got some velocity on these trends. We can see how fast they're moving and their ETA for arrival. But now we've got to turn it into something credible. And that's tough too. And that's step five in this funnel process. Writing it down. It sounds easy, doesn't it? Right, just write down the trend. Well, it isn't. If you just write the trend down as a title, it has no context and, and nobody can understand it. The trick for writing a scenario down is to really write it like a story. Write it about what the future would be like with this trend fully evolved or these combination of trends fully evolved and embedded in our society. Think about all the things that have happened in the run up for that trend to be successful and to be embedded as far as it has and put those key elements into that little story. About a page, page and a half of writing it down. When you read it back out, if it sounds completely wacky and totally implausible, well then it probably is. And it's the act of writing it down that really lets you see that. It's one thing to think it, it's a second thing to write it down and read it back. And just that, that transformation of the ideas in our head into a sheet of paper allows us to pull out the really wacky ones. So now we've written down our scenarios and we probably have a whole bunch of them. Some a page, half a page long, maybe even a couple of paragraphs just. And now we've got to critique them. And this is the last step. This is step six, critiquing the scenarios. Having a method to think about these things critically is tough. So how do you do it? Well, probably the best example is to take a leaf out of what we do in design thinking. And I'm going to give you an, a story from when I was a kid, and it, it drove me mad at the time. I was doing art at school, and my art teacher had asked me to design a poster. And of course, I, I drew this beautiful poster, which I thought was the best poster in the world. And my teacher came up and said, great, now do six more, completely different, wacky ideas, anything you can think of. And I remember arguing with her, no, no, I've done the best one. I don't need to do any more. And she said, no, six more. So we start off with six wacky ideas. And then she said, pick the best one and do six versions of that all over again. Take that as your inspiration and tweak it and change it and come up with more ideas. And when I did that, she came back again and said, do it all over again and maybe do it six times. And I remember going absolutely potty at this. This was just so frustrating. Obviously, I'd come up with the best idea in my original one. Why would I need to do six more of these things? But you know, and I know now, that I hadn't. And actually, the best idea came after many iterations. Now, this is an example of design thinking. And the actual process is called divergent and convergent thinking. Divergent, think of wacky ideas. Convergent, bring them together, try and solidify them. Think of these wacky six ideas. Pick one that you think's good. And then 
try to iterate over that or combine it with some of the other ideas you've come up with. And that's essentially what we need to do with our scenarios. We need to go through them and, and sort of critique them in this way. And there's some bullet points here that I want to go through that I've stolen in part from Amy's process and because they're really good, they really help. So when we're critiquing these stories, think about what they do. Does that scenario that you're talking about really offer a unique setting point? Can you see some, some nugget of value in it for everybody? And if not, put it to one side or think about combining it with something else. Can you identify KPIs in them? Is there something that you can measure that would tell you if this, the story in your scenario is going to be reality? Is it the proliferation of uh, onboard units and new cars to make them all connected? Can you track how many are sold? Is it the number of roadside units that talk to these cars? Is it the number of embedded processes that are sold? What is it that's letting you see that this vision of the future that you've come up with might actually be trending with reality. Next, the timeline again. Think about the ETA for the scenario. When you've written down that scenario, did you put enough detail in there so that you can see all the steps that need to be completed for this to be a viable future vision? And if you haven't, go back and try and improve the scenario and add them in, if you can. And if you can't, well then, maybe we need to put that to one side. The next tip really is to either drop the scenario if it's not looking good, tweak it, update it, or just look to combine it with another one. You might have written a couple that are quite similar. Would they be better off combined? And this process, obviously, I said, told you the story of my, my uh, schoolboy art poster challenge. The six times with six iterations, well, that's just a guide. And it's a lot of effort and a lot of time. And we don't all have that. So at some point, you need to learn to stop and just put your pen down. And usually that's going to be simply driven by how much time you have to do this. And I suggest time boxing yourself because depending on who you are, it's either a completely frustrating experience like it was for me writing these, uh, sorry, drawing these posters. Or occasionally when I get hooked on a scenario or a future trend that I think is really fascinating, I can disappear down a rabbit hole of brainstormed ideas and concepts for days and while I personally enjoy it, it doesn't deliver much value to my employer so you kind of need to time box yourself so you don't get carried away with that in mind by the time we get to the end of this whole future prediction process we've gone from an improved version of scenario prediction from what Rohit's provided us through to ETA for a trend then we've written some trends down and scenarios and looked at how they might be combined together. We've critiqued our scenarios and we now have something that we're pretty confident in. And that's enough for us as an industrial researcher to have a vision of the future. We don't have to be perfect at it, but it has to be a credible vision. And these steps, which are well-trodden and well-proved by a bunch of different people, get us there. In the next episode, I'm going to be talking about the research roadmap process, getting back more towards the research side. But I wonder if you can already spot some of the similarities between this six-step funnel and this process and the research roadmap process. 
if you have, let me know. You can find me on Twitter as at MCWoods. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. You can find it on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Overcast. And probably a lot of other places too. And if you can't find it, let me know. I've got another podcatcher to add it to. In any time, stay safe, particularly with the whole COVID-19. Keep yourself isolated, wash your hands, keep well, and I'll talk to you again next time. The music used is an excerpt from Bust This, Bust That by Professor Cleek and is used under Creative Commons. Wait, what? So guys, right now, artificial intelligence is used everywhere. When you shop online, it predicts what you're going to buy next. Sometimes your schools can use it to try and work out how good you're going to be at a subject. Isn't that kind of crazy? Uh? Doctors can use it to try and track and predict sicknesses. And we use it to spot things in images. We Computers use it to see things and work out cars and read license plates as you drive down the road. Isn't that nuts? Yeah. yeah. But guess who provides the most computing power? for artificial intelligence. Ooh. Do you think it's a computer company? Yeah. No. What? Yeah. Do you know who it is? No. It's a shop. A it's, shop? It's yeah. a shop? I know, it's Amazon. Amazon? Amazon? Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's really cool.